Part five, chapter eight of the Manxman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Manxman by Sir Hall Cain. Part five, chapter eight. The following evening, the Deemster was in his rooms in Athol Street. His hat was on, his cloak was over his arm, he was resting his elbow on the sash of the window and looking vacantly into the churchyard. Jem was behind him, answering at his back. Their voices were low. They scarcely moved. "'All well upstairs,' said Philip. "'Pretty well, Your Honour. "'More cheerful and content?' "'Much more, except when Your Honour is from home. "'The Deemster's back, she'll say, "'and her poor face will be like sunshine on a rainy day.' Philip remained silent for a moment, and then said in a scarcely audible voice, "'Not fretting so much about the child, Jemmy. "'Just as anxious to hear of it, though. "'Has he been to Ramsay to-day? "'Did he see her? "'Is she well? "'That's the word constant, sir.' "'The deemster was silent again, "'and Jem was withdrawing with a deep bow. "'Jemmy, I'm going to Government House, "'and may be late. "'Don't wait up for me.' "'Jem answered in a half-whisper. "'Someone waits up for your honour "'whether I do or not.' He's at home now, she'll say, and then creep away to bed. Philip muttered, thickly and huskily, The decanter is empty. Leave out another bottle. Then he turned to go from the room, keeping his eyes from his servant's face. He found the governor as violent as before, and eager to fall on him before he had time to speak. They tell me, Deemster, that the leader of this rising is a sort of left-hand relative of yours. Surely you can stop the man." "'I've tried to, Your Excellency, and failed,' said Philip. The governor tossed up his chin. "'I'm told the fellow can't even write his own name,' he said. "'It's true,' said Philip, "'an illiterate and utterly uneducated person.' "'All the same, he's the wisest and strongest man on this island,' said Philip decisively. The governor frowned, and the pockmarks on his forehead seemed to swell. "'The wisest and strongest man on this island will have to leave it,' he said. Philip made no answer. He had come to plead, but he saw that it was hopeless. The governor put his right hand in the breast of his white waistcoat. He was alone in the dining-room after dinner, and darted at Philip a look of anger and command. Deemster, he said, if, as you say, you cannot stop this low-bred rascal, there's one thing you can do. Leave him to himself. That is to say, said Philip, out of a corner of his mouth, to you. To me be it. "'And who has more right?' said the governor hotly. Philip held himself in hand. He was silent, and his silence was taken for submission. Cracking some nuts and munching them, the governor began to take another tone. "'I should be sorry, Mr. Christian, if anything came between you and me. Very sorry. We've been good friends thus far, and you will allow that you owe me something. Don't you see it yourself? This man is dishonouring me in the eyes of the island. If you have tried your best to keep his neck out of the halter... Let the consequences be his own. Eh, said Philip, with his eyes on the floor. You have done your duty by the man, I say. Help yourself to a glass of wine. Still Philip did not speak. The governor saw his advantage, but little did he guess the pitiless power of it. The fellow is your kinsman, Deemster, and I shall not ask you to deal with him. That would be inhuman. If there is no hope of restraining him to-morrow, wise as he is, if he will not listen to saner counsels, I will only beg of you. But this is a matter for the police. You are a high official now. It would be a pity to give you pain. 
Stay at home. I'll gladly excuse you. You look as if a day's rest would do you good. Philip drank two glasses of the wine in quick succession. The governor poured him a third and went on. I don't know what your feeling for the man may be. It can't be friendship. I'm sure he's a thorn in your flesh. And as long as he's here, he will always be. Philip looked up with inquiry, doubt, and fear. Ah, I knew it. Even if this matter goes by, your time will come. You'll quarrel with the fellow yet. You know you will. It's in the nature of things, if he's the man you say. Philip drank the third glass of wine and rose to go. Leave him to me. I'll deal with him. You'll be done with him, and a good riddance too, I reckon. And now come in to the ladies. They'll know you're here. Philip excused himself and went off with feverish gestures and an excited face. The governor is right, he thought, as he went home over the dark roads. Pete was a thorn in his flesh, and always would be. His enemy, his relentless enemy, notwithstanding his love for him. The misery of the past month could not be supported any longer. Perpetual fear of discovery, perpetual guard of the tongue, keeping watch and ward on every act of life, today, tomorrow, the next day, on and on until life's end in wretchedness or disgrace. It was insupportable, it was impossible, it could not be attempted. Then came thoughts that were too fearful to take form, too awful to take words. They were like the flapping of unseen wings going by him in the night, but the meaning of them was this. If Pete persists in his purpose, there will be a riot. If anyone is injured, Pete will be transported. If anyone is killed, Pete will be indicted for his life. Well, I have done my duty by him, his heart whimpered. I have tried to restrain him. I have tried to restrain the governor. It isn't my fault. What more can I do? Philip walked fast. Here was the way to escape from the evil that beset his path. Fate was stretching out her hands to him. When men had done wrong, they did yet more wrong to elude the consequences of their first fault. But there was no need for that in his case. The hour was late. A strong breeze was blowing off the sea. It flicked his face with salt as he went swinging down the hill into the town. His blood was afire. He had a feeling, never felt before, of courage and even ferocity. Something told him that he was not so good a man as he had been, but it was a tingling pleasure to feel that he was a stronger man than before. Should he tell Kate? No. Let the thing go on. Let it end. After it was over, she would see where their account lay. Thinking in this way, he laughed aloud. The town was quiet when he came to it. So absorbed had he been, that though the air was sharp, he had been carrying his cloak over his arm. Now he put it on, and drew the hood close over his head. A dog, a homeless cur, had begun to follow at his heels. He drove it off, but it continued to hang about him. At last it got in front of his feet, and he stumbled over it in one of his large, quick strides. Then he kicked the dog, and it crossed the dark street, yelping. He was a worse man, and he knew it. He let himself into the house with his latch-key, and banged the door behind his back. But no sooner had he breathed the soft, woolly, stagnant air within than a change came over him. His ferocious strength ebbed away, and he began to tremble. The hall passage and staircase were in darkness. This was by his orders. Coming in late, he always forgot to put out the gas. But the lamp of his room was burning on the candle-rest at the stairhead, and it cast a long sword of light down the staircase well. Chilled by some unknown fear, he had set one foot on the first tread when he thought he heard the step of someone coming down the stairs. It was a familiar step. He was sure he knew it. It must be a step he heard daily. 
He stopped, and the step seemed to stop also. At that moment there was a shuffling of slippered feet on an upper landing, and Gemma Lord called down, Is it you, Your Honour? With an effort he answered, Yes. Is anything the matter? called the manservant. There's somebody coming downstairs, isn't there? said Philip. Somebody coming downstairs, repeated the manservant, and the light shifted as if he were lifting the lamp. Is it you coming down, Jem? Me coming down? I'm here holding the lamp, Your Honour. Another of my fancies, thought Philip, and he laid hold of the handrail and started afresh. The step came on. He knew it now. It was his own step. An echo, he told himself. A dream, he thought. A mirage of the mind. And he compelled himself to go up. The step came down. It passed him on the stairs, going by the wall as he went by the rail, with an irresistible down-drive headlong heavily. Then came one of those moments of partial unconsciousness in which the sensation of a sound takes shape. It seemed to Philip that the figure of a man had passed him. He remembered it instantly. It was the same that he had seen in the lobby to the council chamber, his own figure, but wrapped in a cloak like the one he was then wearing, and with the hood drawn over the head. The body had been half turned aside, the face had been hidden, and the whole form had expressed contempt, repugnance, and loathing. "'Not well to-night, Your Honour,' said the far-off voice of Gemma Lord. He was holding the dazzling lamp up to the deemster's face. "'A little faint. That's all. Go to bed.' Then Philip was alone in his room. "'Conscience,' he thought. "'Pete may go, but this will be with me to the end. "'Which, O oh God, which?' He poured out half a tumbler from the bottle on the table and gulped it down at a draught. At the same moment he heard a light foot overhead. It was a woman's foot. It crossed the floor and then ceased. End of Part 5 Chapter 8